Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Again, have to be careful of the speed. What a comeback season for Hal Sutton. Come right back toward the hole. everybody welcome to another be the right club today podcast how we got a, a pretty special guest on for this week yeah we do i'm uh you know i'm i'm happy that he agreed to do this he and i go back a long ways and played in the president's cup together as partners uh played a lot of golf with him one of the greatest players of all time one of the most unique and and studied golf swings of all time mr 58 jim furick yeah um did you play any Ryder cups with jim uh, I mean, you obviously were on the same team, but did you get, were you guys paired, paired together? Never paired together at the Ryder Cup. Yeah. Just at the President's Cup. But, you know, I've spent a lot of time around Jim. I mean, one of the things he mentions in there is how he and I and Langer, we were all with Spalding Hogan, and we compared notes about everything. Uh, you know, Jim and I talked a lot back in the day, yeah. you know. Similar... Um you hit a little further, but similar kind of styles of play relied on on very accurate ball striking. Well, as as he says in the podcast here, you know he came out there known as a chipper and a putter, yeah, and he's right. elevated his ball yeah. striking. Yeah. Uh, back whenever I was playing with him, he was really unbelievable short game. Yeah. And improving with his golf swing. That's right. You you forget. I think early on, yeah, he was one of the best bunker players. Yeah. Out there, him and Azinger were always known as like two of the best bunker players, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Jim talked about on there, and I mean, I, I I felt envious in a way when he said, you know, he was unheralded basically when he came out of college, and yeah. he was allowed to just mature at his own pace because yeah. nobody had any expectations. Well, I was on the opposite end of that, yeah. and there was a lot more pressure on the side that I was living under than him and I mean you know I I recognize that was very important to him that he was able to develop without at his own pace rather than at the media's pace the world's world's pace like I like to say he was able to marinate he was able to to not get out out past his shoes you know before we get started with this he's the fourth leading money winner of all time with 71 and a half million dollars and you know when you look at Jim Swing at one point in here I said something to him about his dad and his relationship and and how you know most people would not have seen that as you know it's unconventional yeah and I didn't want to say something that felt rude to him you know but you know I it He's had other people say things to sure. him about his golf swing. Sure. And, you know, I think probably in my mind I have as much respect for him as anybody in the game because they had the foresight to never change. Mm. And he saw it out through the end. He's won 29 times, I think. And uh, what a great player he's been. You know, he's uh, he's a great player. And you will get that in this yep. 
in this podcast, you'll understand what being a great player really is. Well, it was an awesome interview. It was an awesome discussion. Um, one of the best players to ever play the game. You guys enjoyed Jim Furyk. All right, our next guest on the Be the Right Club Today podcast is Mr. Jim Furyk. Jim's the uh, four, he's fourth all-time leading money winner on the PGA Tour. Twenty-nine total wins. He holds the record for the lowest round ever on the PJ Tour with the nickname of Mr. 58. Jim, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate it. It's nice to be on. Well, Jim, let's get right into it. You've had so much success with only your dad as an instructor. A couple of things. Uh, tell us about that relationship. And then uh, have you ever seen anybody else? Uh, dad sent me to a few people when I was younger as far as uh, – I think just having another set of eyes, uh, maybe knew some great teachers. I grew up in the Philadelphia area, knew some great teachers in Philly. Uh, thought there was a few guys that had some, yeah, had some nice things to offer, maybe a different way of looking at things or teaching me. And I think he also wanted, uh, you know, maybe a couple teachers to look just to make sure he was on the right track as well. But for the most part, it was either always under his watchful eye or uh, folks that he kind of sent me to. So, it, but, but for the most part, I mean, ninety. 99% of my lessons in my golf have, have come through dad. Yeah. So we teach a lot of kids in here, and sometimes the dynamics of uh, parents and kids are difficult. <laughs> so, so talk about your relationship with your dad and, and how it's been through the years. Well, we're, we're very close, and we always have been. But as you yeah. know, it's difficult to teach someone you love, a husband, wife, a son, father. Uh, it. it it can be an interesting dynamic. And I think we've gotten so much better at it over the years and the last five to 10 years have been, uh, have been super easy. But when I was a kid, I, yeah, I was probably very difficult to teach at times like most kids are. Um, if I went to, if dad sent me for a lesson to another golf professional, of course, I, I was polite. Yes, sir. No, sir. Listened to everything they said would never, you know, dare like talk back or question an authority. But when you're a, you know, a, a, when you're in that parent-child relationship, a child always questions. You know, you know, I, I, you know, I, I would I would speak to him in a manner that I wouldn't speak to another adult or a teacher, um, and not in a not like I was a bad kid, but it it was an interesting dynamic, and we got into our knockdown, drag them out arguments, and I can remember being in the junior tournament, and there were some folks watching him give me a lesson, and they had a bet on whether he was actually just my teacher or whether he was my father and my teacher, and uh, you know, so we, we, we definitely got in our share of arguments and I kind of looked at it when I was a kid, I thought they were kind of all his fault. You know, like you look and he was just being hard on me and harder on me than he would be on another student. Uh, and then I got to college and I thought a couple of them were probably my, my fault. And then I was a young pro and I thought, you know, a fair amount were maybe my fault. And then I can distinctly remember being in, in Ponte Vedra at Sawgrass Country Club and my eight-year-old boy wanted me to give him a lesson. I took him to the golf course and I was trying to kind of help him out a little bit. And he really wanted no part of it. He was being very difficult, uh, was not very teachable, wasn't taking really any uh, instruction very well. And I kind of had that, that moment or of clarity where I went, well, I'll be damned. All those arguments with my dad were probably my, not probably, they were my damn fault. Like every one of them. <laughs> and uh, I was like, it's just kind of coming full circle and bite me in the rear end right now. So um, it's made us a lot closer over the years. And, and I have a really great relationship with both mom and dad. 
And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful for that and how close I am and how much love and support they've given me throughout the years. And um, I'm not trying to paint a picture that I was a terrible kid or a very difficult kid. I, I just think there's always that dynamic, as you said, and it's very difficult uh, to maybe take a lesson from someone you love so much and vice versa, harder to give a lesson probably too. So, um, you know, I, I've tried to really step back. My boy's just a recreational golfer. I've tried to really step back and, and just let him play and have fun. And, and eventually he'll get frustrated or eventually he'll want instruction, come to me and ask for advice. And then it's pretty darn easy to maybe throw in a couple things to work on and, and let him go with it. But, uh, you, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard. And so for, for fathers and sons and golf professionals and pupils that have done it out there, uh, they understand, they know how difficult it can be. My uh, my three, four, and six year old already tell me, "Daddy, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it." So I can't imagine how they're <laughs> gonna how they're gonna be ten years from now. I'm gonna need 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 to take really good notes. We joke a lot on here too, like twenty percent of the time, our goal is to fix these kids' golf swings or or mental game on the golf course. Eighty percent of the time, it's to make sure the parent child relationship is really good. So or or is yeah. where it needs to be because it's it's such diff it's difficult to do that. Um, you know, Jim, well, I'm, I'll say that I'll add to this. I'm thankful that my dad. Like it wasn't important to him that I became a great player or that I worked that hard or it was basically he would let me know what I needed to do to become a better player. But no, he was a he was a salesman traveling on the road. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't watching over me every day or making me go practice or play golf. It was that was all me. And I think most parents have to realize that, you know, you, you can't you can't build a Tiger Woods. Right. You, you can you can show them how to get better and you can you know, give them the, the blessing of the game of golf and, you know, how to, how to play it. But if, you know, to come, become a great player, that's something that they have to kind of have genuinely in their heart. And they're going to have to want to work that hard and enjoy that work uh, along the way. You just, you can't make that happen. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Yep. So, Jim, so you kind of – go ahead, Chase. Sorry, Hal. So, Jim, you've, you've obviously had, you know, one of the most successful careers of anybody that ever played the game. And – you know, we talk a lot on here about mindset and the importance of pre-shot routine, commitment, et cetera. Talk about your pre-shot routine and how, you know, how you commit to every shot. Well, well, first and foremost, no one commits to every shot. I mean, we try to, right? That's, that's the goal. But, uh, you know, we're all going to have a little bit of doubt once in a while. We're all going to, you know, maybe not be very, uh, you know, not commit fully. And, and uh, you know, we're human. We're going to make mistakes. Uh, I think that, one of the things I did in my career and have still do in my career is I probably work as hard or harder than anyone else in the game on what I do before I ever draw the club back. And so trying to be very consistent and approaching the ball the same way, uh, you know, picking out a shot you want to hit, picking a club, committing to it. But what I do from the moment that I start walking to the ball, the steps that I take, how I approach the ball, how I enter, and then looking at my, you know, everything on my setup, whether it's alignment, ball position, posture, grip, uh, distance from ball, whatever it may be, I, I've worked really hard on trying to be extremely repetitive in that area. And, and I think, you know, someone like Hal, who had a great golf swing, was a great ball striker, when he started going bad, I really don't believe his swing went bad very often, if that makes sense. You know, like there's a lot of amateurs or good players out there that, one day they shoot one of their best rounds or they have one of their better ball striking rounds. And then the very next day they, they lose it, right. They all of a sudden, 
you know, they totally lose it and they hit the ball terrible. And, you know, I don't believe that someone like that loses their golf swing in a day. I think they're doing something, whether their mental approach has changed, whether, you know, ball position, alignment, something's gotten off. And now you have to try to make an adjustment in your golf swing to, to make up for it. And, you know, you, it feels like your golf swings, you know, basically left you, but, in all honesty, I think you're just approaching the ball or doing something a little bit differently. And, and, uh, I I've worked on that pre-shot routine and, and that repetitiveness and, and trying to get in that same position, uh, just for countless and countless and countless hours. And it's still, I get off, right. I get, a, I get, you know, some of my bad habits. I like to aim left, uh, early in my career. I like to aim left. I like to get the ball position too far back because of it. Uh, and then my golf swing would change, right. Get the club in behind me, try to help it back out to the right contact would change, start hitting the ball a little lower at times. I just, you know, and, and so being aware of your bad habits and, and knowing like, you know, I, I pretty much have the same five bad habits throughout my entire career. And when I, when I'm not playing well, when I don't have my dad there to help and eyes, I kind of start running through the checklist. Well, these are normally the things that go wrong. And uh, you know, and it basically all starts with everything I do before I even draw the club back. I'm not very mechanical in my swing. Well, you've kind of answered this next question already, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it. All right. Uh, so I would not call your swing conventional, would you? Nope, not at all. Okay. So the reason why I ask you this is, is a lot of people today would have tried to change Jim Furyk's golf swing. And I know you get asked this before, but – if you came in here at 10 or 12 years old or 13 or 14 and we tried to change your golf swing, I don't believe your golf swing made Jim Furyk. I believe your middle toughness, your commitment, and all the things you just talked about made Jim Furyk who he is today. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I'll go as far to say that if I went to someone early in my career who tried to break my golf swing down and made me look more textbook and like everyone else, I don't believe I would have had the career on the PGA tour that I have, uh, or that I had. Um, I don't believe that I would have, uh, won more tournaments or I don't think I would have won as many, to be honest with you. I think that I, it would have been counterproductive and, uh, I do believe that the mental fortitude, I think the work ethic, the belief in yourself, um, you know, the drive and the willpower to get up every morning and have that strive to get better, no matter how good or bad you're playing, just wake up every morning and the first thought to be, how am I going to get better today? Those are the things that lead to, to good careers. But my dad was always a firm believer. I, the reason I think my dad was a good teacher and probably a very underrated teacher is that I think good teachers relate to their students and that everyone learns in a different way, right? Some people, some people are more visual. Some people are more technical. Some people, you know, Ben Crenshaw and Tom Kite do not learn in the same way. And right. Mr. Penick, Mr. Penick had a fourth grade education, but he taught Ben through feel and he taught Tom through mechanics. Um, and I think the man was brilliant because he could talk both languages. He could teach different pupils in different manners. And my dad kind of has a knack 
of speaking with people, understanding how they learn. And he is very good at communicating and explaining uh, to different pupils and, and manners that they understand. And so dad learned early on that I wasn't very mechanical. I wasn't real good at trying to change my swing. And he firmly believed that what, what is natural is repeatable and it's repeatable under pressure. And so we worked on my, on my, my, my basics and the fundamentals and my swing has definitely gotten from the time you first saw me, Hal, when I was in my early to mid twenties to now my swing has got a lot, a lot better and a lot more technically sound. Um, you know, that's just, that's just over time and becoming a better ball striker and, and the strive for, you know, to, to become a better player, but, um, well, you've always the, been a good player. Well, the, re no. the reason my – but the reason – but I've become a much better ball striker, I guess. Okay. You know, uh, throughout my career. When I was 25, no one would have said I was a great ball striker. By the time I was 45, statistically speaking, my ball striking was probably one of my best stats. You know, right. and, and so I was always known as a short game and putting, and everyone just assumed that I wasn't a great ball striker because I'd look different. But then as I got older and people started seeing – you know, leading the tour, and like I, I led the PJ Tour in fairways hit and greens hit uh, when I was 49 years old. Uh, you know, it, it kind of people took notice of things statistically as I got older, but my swing got a lot better and more sound. But why dad was so smart was that he realized that I couldn't change, and he, he kind of instilled that confidence in me. If it's natural to you, you can repeat it and you'll be able to repeat it under pressure. And, and he firmly believed that he believed that if I had to break it down, start all over again and tried to look, you know, I mean, you've got a beautiful swing, Hal, but if I tried to look just like you, um, you know, I, I don't know if I would have been able to repeat that under pressure, to be honest with you. Well, I think one of the things, you know, we have a lot of technology in here and uh, you know, somebody will come in here and say, I want to be too right on the path. And, you know, I'll ask why. And, you know, most of the time their answer is uh, because I want to hit a push draw, basically. Well, that depends on where your club face is, too. But, sure. but at the same time, let's look for what's natural for you, what's easy for you to do, which is what you've been describing there. You know, most people want what the world says they should have instead sure. of what is natural to them. Right. And I know that. You know, I, I want to be the other way. I don't really follow too much on TrackMan or launch monitors, or but, you know, I've had it done. I've been with Callaway. I've been on the equipment. You know, I like to swing a little bit to the left side. And, you know, my, my, perfect, my perfect shot, the one that I love, is just a little bit of a pull cut. That's the one that just feels repeatable. I hit it. It starts a little bit left, and I know it has no way it's going left. And I feel like I take that left side out of play. That's, that's my favorite golf shot. But – you know, hey, some days you wake up in the morning and you're hitting a little bit of a block draw. And, you know, it, you can fight it. You can try to hit that pool cut all day long, but it's just not there. Or you can just go play that push draw for the day and, and get it around and maybe shoot a really good number. So um, I, try to, I try to be versatile. I try to, you know, work on being able to hit the ball both ways. If I need to cut it or draw it, hit it high, hit it low. But uh, that one shot, like if you just said under pressure, you've got to make one swing. I want to stand up, kind of set up at my target or barely left of it, hit a little bit of a pull cut. That's the one that I just trust. And, uh, you know, under the gun, that's if, if I can hit that shot, that's the one I love. So, so Jim, when you're – you've kind of answered it, but I want to go a little further into it. So, when you're off, 
you know, I, I've as a I'm more on the technical instruction side. And when you know, I played at a fairly high level, but nowhere near you or how. Um, didn't play many tours, didn't quite make it. Um, but a lot of people would ask, what would you do if Jim Furyk came and walked through the door? And I was like, my first question is at what age? Because I, I kind of agree with how a little bit, like if we got you at 10 or 11, I, I think that you could have made the changes. At 25, no, you're too good, it's too late. Like that's, that's your motion. That's, that's at least my, you know, my personal belief. Because until we, you know, we've just got videos and we've got the tracking day. We've just got more information for for us as coaches to be able to answer the questions versus kind of what, what we would sure. say, kind of, kind of guessing a little bit more. Right. But my my question is, okay, so if 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 you came in at 45 and you were struggling with your golf swing, one of the first things I would say is, do you have any video or or any information of when it was really good? Like, how did it look? Sure. What was different? And so my question is. When you're off, you've, you're from a mindset standpoint, you're good. You've gone through your four or five checkpoints. Your dad's not around, or even if he is around, how do you? What do you do? How do you? How do you kind of get the 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 mechanics, the the physical side back to you know hitting it like you're capable of? Well, uh, I guess I'm putting something on the ground, and I'm I'm starting on my setup, my you know everything we talked about before, starting alignment, ball position, posture uh distance from the ball grip i mean i'm starting there uh and getting every fundamental i can um you know and then I, i'm you know do you want me to talk through some of the bad habits uh, well, yeah i mean just from do you ever get the video camera out and look at it and say man okay i'm a little bit more vertical than i than i'd like to be in the backswing or do you do you even really care no, about that kind of stuff i don't not at all um i, I would say that in the last 10 years because we have technology and phones and whatever, I'll have my caddy stand behind me or 90 degrees of the target line and take some video and I'll send that video back home. I mean, my dad's the one that's watched me throughout my career. He never taught me through video. Uh, I'm not sure, it's gonna sound funny, I'm not sure I ever saw my swing on a video camera before I went to college, before I went to Arizona. Um, I'm not sure I ever saw it while I was in college. Um, I do remember seeing my swing in my second tour event, and I was on TV a lot that day because I was close to the lead, and, and they were replaying highlights on the news, and I was kind of watching my swing and kind of doing one of those going, huh, feels a lot better than that or feels different than that. But, um, you know, what you say, what, the one thing you said that I really like and I agree with is, yeah, 25 is too late. I, I think once a player – once a good player and a good junior player goes to college, his swing by that point is pretty much his thumbprint. You know, it, it's, it, it's ingrained. You're not going to, you're going to make it better. You're going to refine it, but you're not going to totally change a swing at that point. Uh, 10 year old, 10 years old, you might be right, but I will promise you, you wouldn't have gotten a hold of me at 10 years old because I was playing football, basketball, and baseball and I wasn't <laughs> even playing golf. So I didn't start playing much golf until I was about 12 years old. This is coming. My dad was a club pro. Um, so he took me to play golf and I goofed around with my dad, but I didn't play golf by myself on a golf course until I was 12 years old. And that was right after baseball ended and before football started. I mean, there was about a two month window that golf kind of fell into. And then every year from the age of 12, that golf season grew just a little bit. And I started, you know, I first I quit uh, football, then I quit baseball. Uh, you know, I stuck with basketball because I grew up in cold weather and, and, and uh, you know, loved the game and could still play in the wintertime. But uh, I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't, we didn't, we never worked on my golf swing when I was 10. At that time, I was just, 
you know, gripping it and, and flailing away and hitting the ball as far as I could like most kids are. So at what age did you know golf is my sport? Uh, I'll tell you what, I signed up for freshman football uh, my, in high school and not golf. And, and I kind of got hooked on tournament golf the summer before. And so going into ninth grade, I decided I was going to play some junior tournaments and signed up for some events in Philadelphia. And uh, I set kind of a summer schedule up with my dad and he kind of planned his sales calls around the courses I was going to be playing at. And I, I played eight events that summer and I won six of them. And I called the football coach and told him I was going out for the golf team and, uh, and played golf my freshman year instead. And so that was kind of like the first time I fell in love with the game. And I really fell in love with the competition, right? I enjoyed playing golf at that point with my friends, but in every other sport you practice all week and you have games on the weekends, right? You look, you practice, you enjoy it, but you really like, you're excited to go play a game. And, and that's what a golf tournament was for me, right? I got to practice during the week and kind of get ready. And then you go and test to see, and you know, sometimes it worked out, sometimes it did, but that, that's kind of where I really fell in love with golf was, was the, com the competition, the competitive side in tournaments. And then, uh, you know, I played freshman baseball and my dad kind of came to me in my sophomore year and, and said that, uh, you know, he, he had some friends in the business who had either kids or, you know, nephews or folks, you know, members that, kids were, you know, getting scholarships to play golf. They were playing college golf and, and dad kind of approached me and asked if I was interested, if that's something I may want to do. And I, and I answered that, yes, that I thought, you know, that that's something that I would like to try to do. And so we, we kind of set up a plan then for my sophomore year on of, you know, maybe using the spring to get ready for summer golf, maybe trying to play some events outside of Pennsylvania, my sophomore and junior year, you know, summer after sophomore year, summer after junior year trying to attract the college of coaches attention. And, and, uh, and I ended up quitting baseball my sophomore year as well. So uh, I, I don't know if I ever knew that golf was, I mean, I was very aware that, you know, in the middle of high school that I was better at golf than I was at football, basketball, or baseball. Uh, I, I wasn't going to go play division one uh, football by any means. Uh, but, you know, I never really, I never really thought to myself that, you know, I, I wanted to play golf for a living and I thought it would be cool to play the PGA tour, but I never really said, Oh yeah, I'm going to, you know, that's, I'm definitely good enough to do that. It was always just a matter of, you know, I, I saw that a long time in the future and just tried to work hard to, for the next step, right. You know, to, to try to do well in my state and to try to do well in some national junior tournaments and then kind of build my way up in amateur golf, getting ready for college and, and uh, just tried to take it one step at a time. And, and uh, improve every year. Jim, what's the uh, most nervous you've ever been on the golf course? Uh, probably would have been at a Ryder Cup. Uh, and I'm trying to think, you know, I always thought the singles in Ryder Cup were nerve wracking, the singles matches, um, but all matches, that first tee shot, you know, the first tee shot of an alternate shot on one or first tee shot of your first match, you know, there's a huge buildup, massive gallery around one. And you're not really playing. Now you're, you're not only playing for, you know, you're playing for your country for, you know, a 12 teammates, a captain that you usually adore. Um, it just, it's a different feeling. And I, I grew up in team sports and love team sports. Uh, 
And so I, I, I genuinely love the Ryder Cup because of that. Uh, but that also adds a, you know, it can add, it can, it can be an easing effect knowing that you have a team and support there, but it also can add a lot of pressure because you want to do so well, not only for yourself now, but for your team and your country. And, and, uh, and so I would say the, the Ryder Cups for me have added even more pressure than say trying to win the U S open. I'd say the Ryder Cup probably was the, the pinnacle of that. So just a quick follow-up to that. When you're, because you've talked about the importance of your pre-shot routine and focusing on that. When you got really nervous, how did you, how did you change deal, breathing? What did you do different? Well, my first, my first negative reaction would be everything sped up. Um, I made decisions quicker. You know, I crunched the numbers quicker, made decisions quicker. If I watched video of a shot, what usually would take, you know, 30 to 40 seconds would end up taking 20 to 25 seconds. I mean, everything would speed up. And usually when that would happen, I would lose my rhythm, my timing, my tempo, my swing would speed up as well. That's, you know, bad shots would come from that. I think you, you, you have to very, very rarely, especially, especially, you know, when Hal and I were younger, very rarely did you see a kid come out on the tour at 22. And then when you did very, then even more rarely did you see them have success. We just weren't as mentally prepared. And I feel like you had to kind of take your lumps a little bit. You kind of had to, you had to make the mistakes and then learn from them and then build your way up and kind of climb that mountain. And so one of the things I really noticed when I, when I first got in contention on the PJ tour, I was shocked at how many people were inside the ropes and TV and marshals and, how much movement, how much noise. And it was like you had to direct traffic a little bit out there before you hit every shot, or you had to let traffic calm down before it was your turn. And I, I was definitely taken back by that. I mean, I enjoyed the process and I enjoyed the fact that I was playing so well, but it was a learning experience. And then the more often you put yourself in that situation, the more comfortable you are with it, the more comfortable the cameramen are around you. They know what you like, what you don't like. I was more, uh, capable of if someone was in the way to be able to nicely move them and, and feel comfortable before I hit a shot. So it was just a, you know, I, I was a very raw, uh, basically my first year out of college, I went to Q school. I got what's now a corn Ferry card. Uh, I went back to Q school and got a PGA tour card. I was very raw as a 23 year old rookie. And, uh, you know, I had to kind of learn on the fly and take some lumps and, and, uh, and, you know, I guess I was fortunate, too, because I was pretty much uh, – I wasn't very – I was unheralded, I guess, coming out of college. No one really picked Jim Furyk to be the next great, you know, college player turned pro. Uh, and so there was no expectations on me, which was actually really nice. Um, I could kind of improve and do things at my own pace, at my own rate. And it actually happened fairly quickly for me that that I became successful and won on the PGA Tour. But – if I had come out of college and everyone just expected, or I was picked as the next, you know, can't miss kid, you know, the Phil Mickelson of, of my era, that'd have been really difficult for me because I just wasn't ready for it. And, and I kind of needed the time to improve at my own rate. So I'm curious, you said you don't know much about, you don't use launch monitors. Do you even have one? I do. I do. I own a track, man. Uh, there's times I use that. I use it for, uh, I use it for wedge shots a lot. I use it for dialing and yardages uh, for wedges. Uh, and I use it for when I'm 
you know, it, a lot of times in the fall and in the spring when, you know, new equipment comes out. So if, if Callaway's got new drivers, new balls, uh, I'll sneak off to the, you know, sneak off to the back of the range at home and, and, uh, and use it there. But uh, there's years where I use my track, man, less than 10 times in a year. I mean, 10 days uh, in a year. And then there's times where, you know, I might have it out for five days in a row on the range. So, um, you know, it's a little bit more, uh, I enjoy it. I think the best name I've ever heard for, for launch monitors is the drama box. That's what the equipment reps <laughs> on the PJ tour call it causes a lot of drama. Um, yeah. when used when used properly, it can be a really effective tool when not used properly. And I see it happen a lot, even at the tour level, it can cause a lot of grief. Uh, and actually I think can be detrimental at times. I would agree with you. So how much do you play on the regular tour now? Uh, I played earlier this year in the spring. I think I played seven events, but uh, I haven't played since May one. Uh, and I, okay. I don't, and I don't plan on playing on the regular tour pretty much for the rest of this year. I'll be 95% uh, of my golf will be on the champions tour from now on. And, and I'll, I'll cherry pick an event here and there. I, I, I don't, I don't foresee playing more than about three events on the PGA tour a year. So when you go out on the driving range on the PGA tour, not on the champions tour, uh, how many launch monitors does everybody have out there? Most everybody. I would say at least one out of three guys has one. It, it, I mean, I would say most everyone owns a launch monitor. Uh, but when you're on the range, I would say one out of three players minimum is probably using one uh, at any given moment. Um, right. You know, 50-50 probably at most. But, you know, some guys are going to run out and warm up and not take it with them. Right. Um, you know, I rarely bring mine on the road. Uh, if I drive my own car to tournaments, I might throw it in there. Rarely do I – do I carry it on a plane? But I have, I have done it. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing some testing or if I'm going to, uh, if I'm out West, I know I'm going to Carlsbad to do some testing with Callaway. Uh, I may throw it in there. Not that they don't have their own monitor, but I may throw it in there uh, to work on it. You know, knowing I may grab a new driver, I might be playing a new ball. I'll take it with me to, to the next event just so I can, I can kind of see numbers and see what's going on. Jim, what, uh, with regards to TrackMan data, would you say most of the guys are looking more at ball data? I mean, it sounds like you're looking more at ball data than not as worried about what the club's doing, maybe outside of club head speed. I'm looking all at ball data. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't talk a lot with other players. I think the guys that are using the foresight are probably looking more at club data. The guys that are using TrackMan are probably using more ball data, I would imagine. Uh, what, what launch monitor do you use? I mean, being a teacher and, yeah, we, and loving the numbers, what, what, what do you use? Yeah, we, we actually use them all. Um, we've got, okay. we've got two track men here. We've got a quad and then we've got a, a couple of, a couple of them that go that are indoor only that go in the ceiling. Um, gotcha. The quads foresight, right? Yeah. So the quad, so to me, they're going to use the quad to see in a vacuum how far the ball is going to go. And then they're going to like Bryson's going to then check with his flight scope or with it, with track to see how far it's going in real time. So they can kind of see, you know, if you're up north, the ball is going to travel, depending on if you're in Colorado, the ball trackman's going to say the ball is going further than quad will because of the altitude and the change. And so they're, you know, again, the quad's based off of a, a photograph at contact. It's going to measure right. how, how it would go again in a vacuum. And then trackman's going to actually right. radar it to see where it lands. Right. So 
my knowledge, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, because there's a good chance. My knowledge is that TrackMan's kind of the industry standard on ball data and what the ball is doing. Yeah. And then the quad is because it's taking a picture of the club, it's doing a good job of telling you the club dynamics, basically. Yeah, and I would say the quad typically is a little better indoors because the, again, the the radar has to track the ball a certain amount of time, and it, the yeah. farther it tracks, the more accurate it is. Um, Understood. I've always wondered, and, and we've asked some players, but I've always wondered just how deep a lot of these PGA Tour kids really know the numbers, and if they're even, you know, they're even looking at path and face and all that stuff, or if they're just using it more so for a pure radar to see where the ball lands. Well, I I think a lot are, um, and I'm I'm actually like it, it's an interesting conversation. I feel like now I'm going to interview you, which is probably not the idea of this whole podcast, but <laughs> like for a teacher, there's a lot of teachers that'll teach off of a track man. And the track man doesn't really know your club data. I mean, it's, it's making a very educated guess using the ball data, what the club's doing. But it would seem to me like, would you really want to teach off of club data off a of track man if it's not actually, you know, it's not actual data, club data. It's, it's ball data that they're extrapolating and saying, well, if the ball's doing this with all these different, this must be what the club is doing. Uh, needless to say, I've had, I've had launch monitor side by side, same company side by side. And I hit a shot and they give me very similar ball numbers, but very different club numbers. And that, that's, that scares me to start using path and face angle. You know, when, when one says that I'm hitting one up on it and the other one says I'm hitting one down on it, that's, that's a major difference. And I've seen that. Yeah, you know, and it's a great point. And and I think, you know, one of the things like with TrackMan, you've got to be a little bit careful at times with face, just like you said, like uh, their path numbers and the swing direction numbers and some of that's really good. To me, it's more if you come in and you're fighting a little bit of a pull or you're fighting like the, like the pull hook. The pull hook was a shot that kind of fooled, let's say, you're, you guys' generation a little bit because forever it was hold the lag and swing more to right field because everybody thought the left ball was an over-the-top left ball, but it really wasn't. It was a lot of times it could be a stuck underneath, club gets closed and it flips over. And right. like, I'll demonstrate with TrackMan, I'll hit a pull hook, and I'll hit a pull hook with a left path and a pull hook with a right path. So I'll go underneath and close the face and then come over it and close the face. And to me, it answers the miss. Why is your ball going where it is? And they're, right. they're all – they might be different if you take one shot, but if you look at quad, track mean, slide scope, all these systems over the – their averages will be pretty close. Like they'll – Pretty close. Some of them will exaggerate a little bit. And I like the fact that you take your track mean to Callaway because your track mean is going to read a little different than their track mean and everything's just a little bit different. But – Sure. I think in general over the course of 100 shots or 50 shots, and I think I would agree with this, I'll, you know, how you can chime in, but – you know, there'll be outliers within it. Gear effect, hitting it off the heel will throw the this, the numbers off. Hitting it off the toe will throw right. it off. But to me, I think it's great to answer, okay, if you're fighting a miss that you're not real sure about, obviously the club's closed to pull it. But is it a path issue? Is it a face issue? That's where TrackMan can at least help answer. And I still – I'll yeah. always say this. It's more for the coach to read the numbers than the player. I really, truly believe that. Right. And I've had, I've had two TrackMans right next to each other at Callaway. And I'm looking at the data on my phone and they're looking at the data and we've had like, and the, the spin numbers are, they're frightening close. Like theirs will say 2540, mine will say 2542. Nice. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable how tight and how good the numbers are. And so that's kind of the, I'm looking more at ball data than anything else. Um, but I think the kids today, I think there's a lot of guys that are very aware of 
the mechanics of the swing and, and the, how the data relates to the ball flight. I think that uh, whether they've been taught by their teachers, you know, what to look for and how to use it. I, I, I think, I think there's a lot of good and I think there's a lot of knowledgeable players out there. Uh, I'm sure, like I said, you know, there's that, there's always, uh, I mean, I think to strive for perfection is great, but, and it, that's why all those guys are on tour because they strive for that perfection to become better. But sometimes it can cause a lot of drama. If that makes sense. You know, you, it can, you know, you scratch your head sometimes where a guy's playing good, but he's still trying to change things, if that makes sense. And, and uh, you know, how you've seen it a lot throughout your career, guys that were pretty good players and, you know, they, well, I've got to do it this way because somebody says, you know, you know, I, you know, when Rory first came out and, and apparently he was swinging like, you know, pretty hard up on it and so many, you know, a bunch of degrees out to the right. And there was a lot of players that, went to their teacher and said, well, you know, Rory drives it so good and so far and he hits that high bombing trawl and that's what I want. So now I got to get, you know, so many degrees up on it, so many degrees to the right. And I want to be just like that. You know, Hey, if you can do that, great. But that was kind of natural for Rory, right? If, if that's, yeah. if that's not your natural move, you may end up going from being a, you know, the 40th ranked player on tour to the 110th ranked player on tour real quick. If, if, if you don't watch out. Well, you said something earlier that I totally agree. You said your fingerprint, your thumbprint. Yeah. And, you know, I think in order to be a great player, you have to identify who you are. Instead of you're not going to become a robot, you're going you're gonna to figure out, you're going to dissect you. You're going to take an inventory of who you are and what you can do. And, you know, we preach that in here a lot. And you do that. You let the ball determine what you need to do. I'm sure. Absolutely. You're, you're yeah. driven by ball flight, aren't you? You are. Well, you were a low ball hitter that created a ton of spin. So you stopped the ball in the greens because you spun the ball an awful, you know, an awful lot. I mean, and hit kind of a flat flighted shot. If, if we tried to take you and make you a high ball hitter, I'm, you know, it, it probably was going to be very difficult for that to function. Yeah. That's not how your swing worked. And when you're standing, I can see, uh, you know, TPC at Sawgrass behind you. When you're standing on the 18th hole, and you're hitting six iron in the 18, I mean, you're going to hit that flat ball flight because that's what you're comfortable with, right? And, right? and that's the one you knew that was going to be just right in the right distance when you hit it. So uh, I, I agree 100% with you. I think most of us, we, have, we, we, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And, and usually it's not that difficult to identify your strengths and weaknesses, but it's difficult to make your weaknesses better. That's where a good teacher comes into play. And, um, you know, I, my goal was – my goal was always to, you know, at the end of the year, figure out what I was good at and ride it, just like you were saying. Ride my strengths, ride my strengths, ride my strengths to become, you know, to, to play well. At the end of the year, let's identify what our weaknesses are and how do we make them better. The problem with that is, and I did it once or twice in my career, in order to make my weaknesses better, you know, in order to try to get longer, in order to try to hit the ball farther, I had to use products that didn't spin that much right? Higher launch, lower spin. And then all of a sudden I started hitting the ball a little bit more crooked. My misses were a little bit more off. My short game wasn't quite as good. My wedge game, I didn't have the control of my irons because I didn't have the spin. I mean, I did a couple of times in my career where I tried to, I tried to take my weakness, which was my length, right? And make that stronger. But in the process I took, you know, when trying to make my weakness stronger in the process of doing so, I took my strength and made it worse. And you know what? Then 
then I couldn't ride that strength anymore. I didn't play nearly as well. And, and, uh, I distinctly made that mistake once in my career. And, uh, and I, I vowed I'd never do it again. I preach it all the time in here. Chase is smiling right now because I tell everybody, I have never seen anybody turn their weakness into a real strength. I've seen them improve their weakness, but I have seen them destroy their game trying to make their weakness a strength because they sacrifice their strength. Right. And you just said it. So that's couldn't agree more. Couldn't well, agree and, more. and one thing, I, I'd always struggled with that when Hal first said it, but with you guys, your strengths were so good that it's just like if Jordan Spieth doesn't putt as well or his, his wedge play is not as good as it was three or four years ago, it's very detrimental to his overall performance. And you got to be really careful because he got there with his thumbprint and he's trying to change it a little bit. And you can see the roller coaster that, you know, that Jim, you went on trying to chase distance and it, it completely – the the line is so thin for you guys, right? Everybody's so good out there. And if you, you know, if, if your strength go, deteriorates just a little bit, it can be, like I said, it can be very detrimental. Um, yeah. Biggest mistake, Jim, that you see, you've seen amateurs make in pro aims. Uh, that's a, I mean, I can only pick one. Two or three, three or four, <laughs> five or six. Perfect. <laughs> two, or, two or three. Um, I'd say that uh, one, uh, I, I think the, the, the average to poor player, the grips, I, I just see terrible grips. Um, that's your only connection to the club. It's very difficult to make a good golf swing with a bad grip because you're not going to hit a good shot anyway. Um, I, I would say I, I'm, I'm kind of shocked at how bad uh, folks' grips can be. Two, I think most amateurs – you, they hear it over and over and over again, aren't realistic on how far they hit the ball. And so the way they manage their way around the course and the club selection they take, like, you know, they'll be 155 yards and they'll hit eight iron because if they just absolutely hit one out of a hundred good, it might go 155 yards. Uh, when in, in all reality, they probably hit an eight iron about 140 yards. Um, you know, and, and so I would go there a three, I would say that, uh, most amateurs are terrified of hitting the ball fat. And with that, I see when their iron play, I see that they always have the ball way too far back in their stance. And it causes an chip, whether it's, and it can be in chipping, pitching, uh, wedge shots, uh, all the way through their irons. They're afraid to hit the big ball first, put the ball back in their stance. And with that, you see a lot of reverse pivots. I mean, if they were to go ahead and make a decent golf swing, they would dig a hole and hit the ball really low because it's so far back in their swing. So you see a lot of folks that kind of reverse pivot, end up on their right foot trying to then help the ball up in the air. Um, you know, they'd be, you'd almost be better off. And if I had something really heavy and I wanted to throw it, I wouldn't start on my left side and reverse pivot to my right to throw it, right? I'd load up on my way to my right. I'd fall over to my left trying to throw They're, they'd be better off putting the ball too far forward in their stance at least they are now moving towards the target they could create some power some speed and they'd get through the ball and hit the ball decent how'd i do i'm a, I'm a nailed I will, it. I will say i'm a shitty teacher so i you know but anyway <laughs> <laughs> well between you and how you guys have played more programs than just about anybody else so you've seen the we we see a lot we see a guy. lot I have one follow-up, one quick little follow-up question. It's about a, it's about a rumor about a, a course in Southwest Kansas that supposedly you're playing in a little 
pro-am or a little mini tour event and somebody some worker there came up and said that the that the range was only open for for the the players playing in the event is there any truth to that garden city kansas maybe it might i I played i played the event southwest kansas open okay Uh, yeah i i don't remember that happening but i i'm not gonna say it didn't how's that i don't remember but i will i will first and foremost say i have a terrible memory uh but i don't remember i don't remember someone ever saying that to me so how's you're that? you're at least there we can put you in at, at buffalo i was there Southland. i played i played uh that was my first year out of college so before tour school in the fall i played uh Geez, I played some uh, Hooters tour events. I played the Kansas Open, Southwest Kansas Open, uh, whatever I could get in, St. Louis Open, uh, whatever I could get in. They had decent purse. Uh, I played to get some experience, but I did play. Nice golf course, too. Yeah, it is. Middle of nowhere, but great golf course. This is true. I, I, I will say that driving from the Kansas Open to the Southwest Kansas Open, I was driving. It was dark. I went like an hour and a half on some highway, and I never saw another car, and it dawned on me. Like I described it to my dad later. I was like, you know, I could like drive off in a ditch in this farm field. I'm not sure someone would find me for a couple of days. Like it just seemed like there was nobody there. <laughs> All right. Well, Jim, thanks for being on today. Uh, just on a personal note, uh, I've always admired you as a person and I've really admired you as a golfer. You're, uh, what you've got inside you has, uh, has made you the player that you are. You're, you're a testament to uh, people that work hard, and you've been a workhorse your whole life, and <laughs> you've, uh, uh, you're a great man. And I'm proud to call you a friend, but I was proud to call you a partner at President's Cup. And yep. uh, we did play a couple of matches up there together, and I think we were pretty successful in them, if I remember correctly. Yep. But anyway. Yep. Uh, well, I've always I've always enjoyed it as well. I think the fact that we were with uh, Ben Hogan Company for so many years together and played similar products and shared a lot of ideas about equipment and balls and and so having uh, I don't know I guess having a good ball striker like you and a friend and we could bounce some ideas off each other, which is really nice. Uh, Bernhard was the third. We were like the three partners in crime. Yeah, that's true. Well, good luck this week. We really appreciate you being on the Be the Right Club Today podcast, and uh, and we're always pulling for you. Thanks, y'all. I appreciate it. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Chase. Thank you, Jim. All right. So I have to admit, it sounded kind of like a broken record when he was uh, talking about strengths versus weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> I know you saw me smile and commented about it, but he that literally he literally sounded like he listened to you go on that rant about ten different times, and just repeated. Did you text him? Did you tell no. him? <laughs> <laughs> no, but but here's the truth. He and I danced on the same dance floor. Yeah, and. Uh, we saw what was successful and we saw what wasn't successful and you know he talked about maturing in this and part of maturing is understanding what works and what doesn't work Mm -hmm. and how quickly you get that really turns into dollars and cents when it comes to the pga tour remembering why you got there how you got there you know that's that's the thing we talked about even after after we talked to jim if you're a five handicap, you have some strengths and weaknesses, but you're not world class in any of them. And so if you you work on on your weaknesses a little bit and get them a little bit better and your strengths go down a little bit, it's not it, you know you, you might be a net gain. But if Hal Sutton goes to work on his short game too much and loses his ability to hit a mid iron as good as you could hit it or loses your you lessen your ability to hit a driver, 
now your advantage that what got you there you just lost it and i i really you know you've been saying this for four or five years and me being a a snobby nose instructor thinking i can help everybody i was like i kind of i would i didn't struggle with it but I, i had to think about it a little bit and now i i completely get it because you guys had to be so good at one or two things to make it. And if you're not, if you're just good at those things, you're a scratch golfer, a plus two handicap. You're not a plus seven or an eight like you guys were. So trust me, anybody that y'all see win 10 or more times out there, they're world class at something. They are world class at something. And whatever that is. Like we're talking one of the best 10 or 12 players in the world like there's not 10 guys that hit it straighter than he did when he was on his game that's my point yeah and if he loses that then he falls out of that category and you know jim recognizes that just like every other really good player that spends any time out there that turns into world class they're gonna they're gonna figure that out what did you think about i thought he answered your question about his dad really well i mean he he kind of touched on all the issues that we have to deal with, um, but then gave his dad a lot of credit for being able to kind of work through. And then he was also aware enough to know to, to know that like it was his fault early on when he was younger. Just like you know, we we see it with the kids. We felt the same way, and then um, you know realized just how much knowledge his dad actually had when he got he got of age. I, that didn't really surprise me. I saw them together enough out there. I never saw them in any sort of tiff yeah. at all. And I've been in tiffs with people that were teaching me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, if anything, I would have always felt more comfortable to be in a tiff with my dad because yeah. I knew he was going to love me anyway. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like Jim and his dad had a great relationship. And, you know, he paid the compliment of his dad being a great communicator you yeah. know and i and I, I bring that up because I, you know this i don't know how many people out there know that but the the art between the teacher and the student is the way the communication is working yeah. and that goes both ways you know it's not just how the teacher communicates to the student but it's also the feedback we get back from the sure. student how the students listening and then also what 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 information they're giving back to right. us and i would say you know if you had a, a a hall of fame list of instructors every one of them were great communicators there was not not you know one world-class instructor that couldn't that didn't know how to communicate there's a lot of really good swing guys or or you know technical aspect they know, they know the tech the technique the mechanics really well but if they can, can't communicate they're only going to help you know 10 percent of their students because they can't they can't say it in the different languages yeah they got to figure out i mean this is really the art you got to communicate the way the student can understand it that's exactly not right. necessarily the way you want to deliver it that's exactly right so you know let's let's touch on the on the uh the technology side um you know we had an, we kind of went down a, an interesting dive down track man and looking at the different radars and, and all that stuff. Um, it didn't surprise me that he had a radar. It also didn't surprise me that he didn't use it a whole lot. Um, a little inquisitive about it, but protective. It was a little bit, a little bit uh, guarded about it. Kind of like how you were, you know? You know, you as a player would have been more guarded than when we first met, you right. know, cause you, you, I was had, done you had kind of quit playing, yeah. yeah. Um, a little surprised he doesn't video more than he does. I, I was a little surprised by that. Um, well, you know, Jim is over 50 years old. Yeah. And he played by feel more than he played by technology. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's more of an artist than he is a scientist. And um, 
it's just it is what it is you know yeah. and you know after he and i after we did the podcast you know i came in here and started thinking about ball data more than i did right. club data mm-hmm. and it it I had a better feeling because that's the way I lived by what the ball did, basically. Yep. And, you know, I've gotten a little bit more aware of of club data than maybe I should. Yeah. And, and again, I think, you know, just like, just like Jim said, it, you, you called TrackMan the drama box. <laughs> you know, if, if you think about, you know, one degree on, on a radar is, is the, the, the size of a width of a piece of paper like it's so minute it's so small and there could be error you know radar error let's say it could have been a little bit off and doesn't know exactly right you know and so what you guys had was the ball and that's the only thing that really that really told the truth um but i i do think that as and you agree with this i mean there's uses for it oh and, yeah and, absolutely and as long as we can it goes back to the art of the of the communication as long as we can filter it down into a way where the, the student is capable of, of accepting it and understanding it. And, you know, Bryson DeChambeau wanted everything, and then Jim would maybe want one number. And that's fine. So it's, it's up to us as instructors to give it to them in the way they can handle it. I 100% agree, you know, and one of the things that I've finally come to grips with is even though I teach, I'm a player first before I'm a teacher. Yeah. And, you know, I can't get myself out of that m- that mold that I'm in, yeah, and uh, you know, I, I take what I can out of the drama box, yeah, and use it to try to help whoever I'm working with. But I still have in the back of my mind, as a player, what do I think? Yeah, and uh, well, and let's just—I mean, you would you would have to teach for 40 years to be a better instructor than you were a player. You know what I mean? You, right. You did the playing forever and became one of the best to ever play, and. You know, and so I think that I think that's what makes you unique and 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 good is that and good at this is you can you can help a really good player kind of get through some of the the pitfalls that the you know like I could obviously play but not near at your level and I if I'm not careful I could go too deep into this stuff and get people's mind in a muddied mess and then they can't play at all. Well, this is off the point here, but it's still pertinent. Uh, I was never a drill person whenever I was playing golf. I hated drills. I wanted to I wanted to be in the action all the time. Yeah. I couldn't do something that didn't produce some sort of result. And you know, it's amazing because I mentioned that I give lessons in here a lot of times for an hour and they might not hit but 12 or 15 balls. I make them do drills. I make them do, right. you know, not hit a golf ball so that they're not ball bound yeah. and that we can push the limits of what they can do so they can see what it looks like on the video because I can push them, you can too, into areas that they can't get to when they're ball bound. Yeah. How Sutton, the player, wouldn't have done that. Yeah. And... So I am branching out a little yeah, bit right. as a teacher, right. than more so than I was as a player. I right. just had to slip no, that I in. No, I like it. And, but House and the player also, again, had a technical enough, and uh, your mechanics, your your the ball was doing what you wanted to for it to do enough times that you you know you we wouldn't have needed to break you down and do a bunch of drills. So I'm going to throw this in because I think this is pertinent. I did not have the guts to ask Jim on camera about where his path was at. But I did after the fact. Do you yeah. think I ought to tell everybody where it was? 
Well, I mean, he he said it with a question mark about you know he said he he swings a little bit left and yeah. you know he likes to hit a cut. So yeah. again, that that that's, that says left should be, should be right. Yeah, right? Uh, or could, that's correct. You know. So, but my point in telling you this is. Is he's not that concerned with that. He's actually concerned with where the ball is going. He wants going. the ball to fade. He's yeah. not chasing a push draw like 99% of our students that come in here that want to hit a draw. And there's one of the greatest players in the world right there telling you that. So I thought I'd throw that in at the end. Yeah, he wanted to, to hit something that he was comfortable with and could commit to. So he used the term. He wanted to block out the left side, and he knew his little pull cut. He was never going to hit it left. That is the mark of a good player, a great player, blocking one side of the golf course out that he doesn't have to worry about that's right and you know it's funny i i i pinch myself you know getting to getting to do these getting to talk golf with legends of the game like you guys and the deeper we get into it the simpler it becomes you know create a golf swing that is repeatable enough and then go believe go commit go be um almost fooled into believing how good you are and just go do it and then go do it again and then go do it again and like jim figured out his his one of his commandments was making sure his pre-shot routine was perfect and you even said it was interesting you said this before before we got on we were we were waiting for him to join and you said something about you know he was historically kind of known as a slower player because he was so meticulous behind the ball and then he he said i i spent decades perfecting it yeah well he backed off a lot of times if he knew it was off he backed off which is a really good point you know we don't want to get into the habit of doing that but at the same time he's saying he knew when it got off and he restarted it how many times i mean (laughs) are you just get over it you know it's off but i'm gonna go ahead and do it anyway yeah, my, what, what are my playing partners going to think if I back off again? Or, oh, I've got the wrong club, but it's too far to walk over the cart to get the right club. Then you hit a bad shot and you blame your golf swing. Yeah. Like, it's so stupid. <laughs> it's so stupid. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, like I said, I, I pinch myself getting to talk to guys like that. And, and it's just awesome to keep hearing them say a lot of the similar things over and over. And it's the same thing you've been preaching from the, from the mental game and the, the commitment and the pre-shot routine. And it's something that we're going to keep preaching until we're not preaching anymore. Well, one of the things that I'm going to say is, you know, I'm proud to work with this guy right here because technically he knows as much as anybody does about the game. And, you know, I spent all my life, and I'm 63 years old right now, playing the game at a high level. So, uh, you know, Chase and I are just proud to bring all this to you. Uh, I'm going to keep calling on all my old buddies to come in here and give us what they know. Uh, You know, if we can add up the the accumulation of everything that all of us know we brought a lot of knowledge to that's you right all. so keep liking keep commenting we love the comments we see them all where it, it makes it worthwhile for us to do this when we hear you guys say good things about you know what what you've heard any suggestions keep firing them away we've got some some awesome stuff lined up um and as always thanks again for listening and we will see you next time